I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. We ask questions like, what is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is even worthy of a second chance? I'm Raphael Rowe, and in this episode, I'll be joined by Ez Katel, a former club bouncer. His story about race, violence, revenge and faith is powerful stuff, as is his catchphrase and the title of his book, I'm asking you nicely. Thanks for coming on today. Ez is a man who has a, a, a journey story, I suppose, and it's one that, as I understand it, has gone from violence to revenge to faith, forgiveness. Am I, am I describing your journey in life or a part of your life, Ez, in the right way? Yeah, I would say uh, yes, Raphael. I'd say you're you're pretty much spot on. Um, I had a very very unusual upbringing in that uh, I was born in this country, but I was raised by um, good old fashioned uh, English Cockney people, uh, white people in Dagenham. Talk me through this unusual upbringing and why it was so unusual. It was unusual in that. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm 61 years old now. As I said, I was born in Paddington, London. Uh, my parents, um, uh, my family originated from uh, West Africa, Sierra Leone. My father was a, a, a civil engineer and my mother was a midwife. They came over um, and I'm at that time, obviously I was unaware of, of the problems, but the problem was that they separated, eventually divorced. But um, while they were separated, they uh, they sought uh, foster parents for not just for myself. First of all, it was my sister Yvonne, then my brother Meryl, and um, finally myself. We settled with uh, George and Lillian Warner in uh, in Dagenham. How old was you at the time, Miss? I was uh, I think I was about I was eighteen months when I uh, landed there, so to speak. Prior to that, I'd been in another foster home. My brother experienced several foster homes. But um, as I say, we, we, we ended up in Dagenham, Fitzstephen Road, Dagenham. And um, my mum and dad, and I call them mum and dad, my foster parents, uh, they were from the East End of London. And uh, I have to say at this point, the, 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 the most wonderful people that I've ever met or known or it was a... It was a real loving, we were really loved, even as foster children. They loved us just like they loved their own. What year was it that you were placed with this family in East End? That would have been in 1961, uh, around about 61 I was placed in uh, in, in that foster home. Um, and I, I, I have to say it, repeat it again, I mean, we were loved. We were really, I mean, they didn't have money. 
They, uh, even though my dad worked, it wasn't a well-paid job. But um, we never went hungry. How soon did you start to develop this relationship? Because at 18 months old, all you're doing is pooing and peeing and having your nappy change. And you didn't know what was going on around you. When, when did that point come when you started to recognise the interaction with these adults who were your foster parents? I knew that uh, there was a difference when I went to school at five years old. Because uh, I'd go to Rodin, um, my school was called Rodin, and uh, Rodin Infant School. And I knew the difference, and it was not just the, the children just say what whatever comes on their mind, and they knew I was different. There were no black kids around at that time, not in in Dagenham, uh, and there I am going to school with what mum, white mum, who was an old lady, so to speak. So it was it attracted gawps and stares, and and I and I, I would feel that I would feel that, and I'd sort of want to hide or shrink, but. Um, that's when I really became aware that there was a difference. And yet, as I say, indoors, you know, well, wherever I was, they were my mum and dad. It's just that people, especially adults, it wasn't the children weren't the problem. It was the adults. I mean, we would be stared at as if I was like an uh, an animal in a zoo. There must have come a time where you had... Or did that time come when you had a tricky conversation with your foster parents about the fact that you and your brother and sister were black, they were white? Um, you, you know, how did you tackle that that subject, I suppose? When, or, or did you not have to? I don't know. You tell me. Again, I can't remember sp- a specific time or a, a, a date or event where we discussed it. What did happen is that um, when I was at school, anyone that's different, whether it's the colour of your skin or the colour of your hair or the size that you are, if you stand out, generally speaking, you become a target. And um, and I did become a target for the name calling and, and whatnot. And uh, and also, this is my, my first taste of violence was, um, and it was more verbal threatening than physical, but I felt threatened Um what confronted me was the fight or flight syndrome. When um, a, a boy who was a year older, and a year older, he actually he verbalised threats, but then he actually physically went for me. And as I say, I was quite an introverted boy. I was I felt inferior. I felt second class because of all the name calling. And but I had to decide whether I was going to fight or, or 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 just lay down, so to speak. And I decided to fight. Um, and I mean physically. And from that time, actually, um, I experienced um, people wouldn't be so vociferous. People wouldn't be so intimidatory towards me. Um, and in fact, with some kids, uh, it, it seemed to draw them to me. And, and I developed some real good friendships. So when you came through your school years... What happened next when you got through that experience? And I hear you when you say, you know, that first fight laid down a marker that you were going to stand up for yourself. That garnered some friendships. It made people scared of you. Or at least you weren't just the little black boy in the school anymore. You were maybe the little black boy who could fight or was going to be willing to fight to protect his honour or whatever. How did you see it? I can sum that up better because that's exactly how it was. That's exactly how it was. And and through that, um, my my confidence grew. I wouldn't say by by leaps and bounds, but my confidence grew, and I began to see myself as somebody. Because prior to that, I'd seen myself as uh, as I said as inferior. Uh, and and it's strange because as much as my parents, I keep reiterating about the love of my mum and dad because it's so true. And it was so powerful because without that, I don't know how things would have turned out. But um, I did gain confidence and I became aware that, no, you are somebody. But I still retained that that shyness. Uh, I would always, I, I, I'd never be one to put my hand up in class or in any environment, come to come to think of it. But I do remember being 14 years old in the uh, the back garden of my foster parents' home. In my home, fourteen years old, old, and and I just remember thinking, 
I'm going to be a bodyguard. Now, it was a strange, it seemed a really random thought. But I know the reason why I thought it and wanted to be it, because I've got a heart to protect people. So what I'd done, I was approaching the time, I mean, 16, leaving school, and um, I'd all, often watch my, my father, he loved painting, carpentry, doing all sorts of DIY stuff. And uh, But the time came when I've, I've got to decide what I'm going to do when I leave school. And as I say, I decided I want to be a bodyguard. So what I done, I went to the open day, the Metropolitan Police Cadet uh, uh, Headquarters in Hendon. And yet again, I experienced, and it was racism. Um, I was, at that time, I'm 15 years old, coming up 16, and I went to... And I remember it was a real grey, rainy day and I was in the the canteen and the cadets were there and the four fully-fledged police instructors. And without any words, I was made to feel totally unwelcome. And I remember looking out the window, I had a cup of coffee and I just walked, stood up and walked out and left there. But eventually, what I did do when I left school, I got an apprenticeship with the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham as a painter and decorator. So I'd done an apprenticeship. I went to East Ham College on day release and so on and so forth. And uh, I became a father at 19, at a young age. And I I was of the thought that I've got to provide for my family because that's how I'd been brought up by my foster parents. But I thought, there's more to it than this. I'm fed up with the brush, you know, and wallpapering and stuff. There's got to be more to it than this. Well, coinciding with my, the time that I was doing my apprenticeship, I was at uh, Dagden Boxing Club. I trained at Dagden Boxing Club. And a guy there, he suggested to me, I said, what can I do to supplement my income? I said, I'm fed up with the, the paintbrush. And, and he said, become a bouncer. And I thought, that's just not me. Um, it's really contrary or opposite to my, my character and personality. Between you walking out of that police station because you felt that you were not welcome and going to that boxing club and making the decision to become a, a, a bouncer and then going to, to find that job, was you somebody who continued to fight? Because you talked about the first fight you had as a young man in school in that period, was you somebody who often got into fights and won those fights, which gave you the courage to to box? I wasn't a fighter in that I didn't look for fights. I didn't look for trouble, far from it. But if it came, I would, I would oblige, so to speak. And this Gary who suggested that I become a bouncer, him and I had a fight outside a nightclub called Oscars, which is it's now a McDonald's. And uh, we went out into the car park and we was uh, we were fighting. And the bouncers from there ran into the car park and separated us. Well, back in in, uh, in those days, there was a, a, a police group called the SPG, Special yeah, Patrol Group. Well. Yeah. And unbeknownst to me or anyone else, they'd parked up, the old black Mariah, the Mariah was parked up the far side of the, the car park, shielded by trees. Didn't even see him there. Well, the bouncer, they'd done the job. They'd separated us. But next thing I knew, this police van sped over. And now the guy I'm fighting is a white man, white guy, Gary. And they bundled me in the back of this van, and boy, did I get a kick in. And it was actually one of them that saved my... Because I was face down in the back of the van, and I was getting punched in stamped on and whatnot and my right arm they lifted my right arm up and it felt like it was going to come out of its socket and one of the officers said that's it he's had enough and they stopped uh and i was they didn't take me to Ilford police station or whatever um and i was let out of the van and i stood on the eastern avenue from that moment that was the moment a hatred a real uh hatred came came into my heart I didn't really understand it then, but afterwards I realised everything I'd done that was bad pointed, it, it stemmed from that time I was beaten up. It, it's still with me today, Don't don't. but in a different way. I remember it, but I don't remember it with any kind of, there's no malice or hatred or anything like that, but I still remember it. But that stayed with me for years. And when I started my own door firm, we became, especially back in those days, these days there's, 
hundreds of security companies, but then there weren't that many. And when I started it with my partner, Louis, and um, he's a black guy, um, and we started getting contracts uh, with different breweries and uh, nightclubs, and they were always the worst of the worst because we'd built up a team. We were a very organised. We were dormant. It was a door firm. But we, I built up a team. Well, we built up a team. And at one point, we, we've got like 80, 90 bouncers working for us in different parts of London and, and whatnot. But the more successful I grew in my business, and it was organised. It wasn't just a ragbag of... It was all we were very organized and um and I didn't really understand it then, but afterwards I realized everything I'd done that was bad pointed it it stemmed from that time I was beaten up in the back of that police van. Everything I'd done was it was in rebellion, I would say. And my character, my nature and character, um, and you, I, again, I didn't realise it myself, but it changed, it turned. And this man who, my heart's always been for people, but because of the scene that I was in and the industry that I worked in, um, very subtly, your, 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 your character and your nature becomes hardened and twisted to a point. And so by the time we'd um, we'd been running this firm for 10, 11 years, and uh, we uh, I must add that we, we it was more than just doing doors. We were involved in other things as well. Um, but my 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 hatred for the police it, it it must have fanned out towards pretty much to society, and and especially as I mean bouncers had no friends. So we became like a family. The police hated us. The public hated us. The people that had to employ us hated us, didn't want to pay us. So we, 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 it, it was kind of like we colonised and um, we became, and we were literally a family. We were an organised family. If one's in trouble, you've got a whole team of people after you. And that's how it was. And we did. We fostered a real, that family. Uh, but it was like, us and them, us against the world. And it twists you, it does, it, it, it twists your thinking, um, and then obviously you, 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 you sub, the subsequent actions or behaviour changes. It's interesting, I've got two questions that comes out of what you just shared. And the first one you've almost answered, but I want the, the other feeling that, that you explain, what it takes to be a doorman. And secondly, and more importantly, which sounds interesting, you said that, you know, we were running a, you know, a bouncer's um, a business and we looked after the doors, but we were into a lot more. What did you mean by that? I mean, I was into, uh, I mean, I was a debt collector. Both, both, both ways. <laughs> a legitimate one later on. Uh, when I say legitimate... My partner uh, was licensed by the Office of Fair Trading and so on and so forth, so it was all done properly. But prior to that, um, uh, people would come, they were owed money and whatever, and they would employ us to go and get that money. The majority of the the time, there was a success, you know. um, We succeeded. Um, So... And the uh, other things would be um, escorting people into dangerous situations. So you're not standing on the door of a pub or a nightclub or whatever. You're going into potentially situations where you might not even come back out. You know, you might not come away from. Um, but, uh, I mean, the predominantly, that's what we done. We looked after clubs and pubs, but we would... There were offshoots so you were hired muscle as they would would say does that suggest to me as that you were you were a violent man because you must have been prepared and must have used on occasion violence to get your way whether it was to pick up the debt that was owed or whether it was to ensure that the person you were chaperoning or guarding got to where they needed to get to or you did what they needed doing um, 
so although you, you may not have gone looking for it when it was necessary, you were more than capable of inflicting violence. Yes, and that's why, why I said to you about the twist, your character changing, your person, persona changing, even without really knowing or, or um, uh, seeing it happen or feeling it happen, it just happened. I'll give you an example. When I started at the Ulfa Palais, I was on probation, and I saw the behaviour of some of the, the doormen, and it was alien to me. And I, and I knew, hold on, that's not right. That's not right. That, that You know, it just wasn't me. But guess what? Within a year, I was doing the same thing. And it wasn't re really my character. But then when I, we set our own company up, you've got to lead. You lead from the front. And to gain the respect and the loyalty of, of people that you're employing and whatnot, you've got to do, you've got to sh show the way. So things that had been alien prior to that, things, things that used to be alien, because I wasn't brought up that way. My parents, my foster parents, they were wonderful people. And um, I mean, even they didn't swear in front of us or anything like that. And as I say, it was a shock when I first went to the Palais uh, and saw saw the behaviour of the bouncers, or some of them, and thinking, oh, I could never be like that. I could never do that. And 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 sometime on, I say a year, it might have been a bit longer or a bit less than that. But I was doing the same. Was it just you know throughout this period that you were doing what you were doing legitimately and illegally? Was it just fist and broad, or was there other weapons, knives, guns? Yeah, there were other. There were other weapons involved. I mean, me personally, I've been shot and stabbed and macheted. And I've had my really? head glued up. Yeah, where I've had a hammer put in, into the bone of my head. my head. Every part of my anatomy has experienced some sort of uh, uh, wounding. Every part of me. And you say that with such ease. You, you, you know, that's not something... It's extraordinary because it's not something that... People experience on a daily basis, yes, the line of work you were in exposed you to that danger, but I suspect 50% of it was invited, it, it, you know, you get into comment, but 50% of it was because of the line of fire you put yourself in. How would you describe it? What I would say is, I mean, I'm not a betting man. I don't really understand betting and odds and stuff, but I do understand that um, if you're doing something which I was, my business was seven days a week, daytime contract, nighttime contract, so it was constant. So over a period of uh, 365 days a year, or 364 days a year, and this is over a period of years, so the odds of getting becoming wounded or, or uh, affected by, by, by violence, because let's be honest, that's the nature of the business, um, the odds say that... Uh, you're going to cop it a few times, and that's what's happened to me. I have. I've, I've copped it a few times. And, and likewise, I've uh, dished out some uh, punishment. Tell, tell me just one of these uh, incidents, but in particular, where you were shot. What happened? <laughs> it was at a time when I, my life had really taken a drastic change. By now, I was running most of the, the doors and licensed establishments in Ilford, as well as different parts of London and the M25. Ilford was my, my and my partner. We pretty much had Ilford sewn up. A lucrative business as well as a violent business? Yeah, it was, it was quite lucrative, yes, yeah. Um, but my life changed on February the 6th, 1992. And what happened was, by now, I'd been running my own... I say my own, but I must add, I did have a partner, Louis, for the sure. majority of it. We've been running this company now for years, and we built up a reputation. And um, we we were people would think twice before causing problems. Let's uh, put it like that. And um, a guy that used to work for me used to call him Scouse Pete for obvious reasons. He was from Liverpool. All of a sudden, he disappeared. He just went off the scene. And about two years, uh, yeah, two years after the, the, the last time that I'd seen him, he came back 
and his girlfriend, his fiance at the time, she was a beautiful girl. I'm talking about inside as well as out. And at the time, I was the assistant manager of the General Havelock's Pub in Ilford. I had the security contract, but I was the assistant manager. And um, I was on a night off, and I was with two guys, two friends, the, the least violent men you could ever find. One of them we called Crazy Joe because he was this black guy, but he was eccentric. He'd, he'd always be laughing or smiling, but not a bad bone in his body. And the other guy was out of Bow East London, and we used to call him Little Chunky, and you'd say hello to him, and he'd go bright red. <laughs> you know, right? he, he, he was, so these two guys, and I'm having a drink with these two guys, and all of a sudden, this guy Scouse, he, he comes into the pub, and he's fuming. He's absolutely fuming. And I said, Scouse, calm down. It's hard enough to understand you when, you when you're not angry, you know, with that Scouse accent. But I said, calm down. And he said, those so-and-sos over there, well, he's referring to the Ilford Pally. Now, this is years on. The Ilford Pally's got nothing to do with me now. Um, but this is years on from when I first started there. He said, they've insulted him and his uh, wife-to-be. So I said, what's happened? Well, in the pally, as you go into the reception, they'd have a door girl there as well, as well as the bouncers, the, the, the male bouncers, and you'd have a table, and the contents of the lady's handbag would be tipped out onto the table to make sure she's not got drugs or weapons. Well, instead of tipping the contact, contents out on the table, they've tipped the contents, this girl's tipped the contents out onto the floor. So Scouse Pete has started to remonstrate with the doorman, like, what are you doing? Well, all they've, they've gathered around him. So now he's got to make a decision because he started shouting at them and just telling them what they are. And he's realised he's well outnumbered. So he came over to the pally to see me. But I said, all right, Pete, we'll go over and we'll get an apology. So myself, Scouse Pete... And my two other friends, who are not fighters, not violent in any way, we went over to the palais and we're standing at the steps of the palais. All the bouncers were lined up across the front of the, uh, on the steps and the front of house manager. And I said, look, this guy, you've insulted this guy and his, his, uh, his, his partner. You need to be apologising. Anyway, all the effing and blinding, telling us where to go. So I said to my guys, I said, come on, we'll go to HQ. Well, HQ was a kebab shop. So I took my guys over to the kebab shop and I said to the guy who owned it, I said, Ahmed, look after the boys, do a mistake or whatever they want. I went back to the Palais on my own and I was specifically looking for one guy. And this one guy had said to Scouse Pete, F off and take your slag with you. So he's the man that I want to go and see. So I got to the steps of the pally. There's two doormen on the front, and I've gone through them, gone into the reception, turned right through some double doors, upstairs to the, the top tier, through some more double doors. And as I've gone through these double doors, I'm confronted by the very one that I want to see. But now there's a distance of approximately... 10, 12 metres, and he's in his black black tux and bow tie and whatever, and he's put his hand inside of his jacket. So I know what whatever's going to come out is not going to be good for me. So I've literally run at him and, and grabbed him by the lapels, took him through some the swing doors that led to the stairs up to the offices, and I put him on his back, and I said, tomorrow you're going to apologise to, to Scouse Pete and his missus. And eventually he's gagging and he's, he's said, I'll apologise, I'll apologise. So now you've got to remember that now about 40, 45 minutes as the time has elapsed since we went over to the uh, kebab shop to this moment. I stood up, because he said tomorrow he'll apologise, I stood up, turned round, went through the double doors and there's three of the biggest guys I've seen. My height, I'm six foot four. My height and maybe even taller, one of them. But these guys were really built. They were bodybuilders. And they all had um, uh, like trench coats on, duster coats. Well, the guy in the middle, I could see 
the handle, the baseball bat, and I knew what was coming because then the guy that I'd had pinned down, I've heard the doors go behind me, so now I know there's four of them. But I went for the the guy in the middle. I went for him, and uh, apparently, and um, I mean, it was seen by quite a few people. They all had baseball bats, and the guy behind me put his rings on, uh, knuckle dusters. And when I was unconscious, the, the guy that I had pinned down, he lifted my head, and he continued to pound the left side of my head, face. But they'd left me for dead. And um, with that, as I say, I can't remember any of this, but Chunky saw it because he'd come looking for me. Um, and with that, I, I, I was taken to King George Hospital. They'd done a seven and a half hour operation and inserted metal plates in my skull to keep my skull together. They inserted a plastic spacer under my left eye, but my lower mandible, the jaw, they couldn't do anything about, but it was totally out of whack, totally askew. Uh, and as you could imagine, I'm in, in intense pain. So I'm in King George's Hospital, eventually released from there to my flat in Ilford, Empress Avenue, Ilford. And I was a shadow of a man. I was in excruciating pain all my life. I've, I've known what physical pain's like, but nothing like this. And instead of getting um, better, it got progressively worse, my condition. I went to the London Hospital Whitechapel, this time to see another Mr. Consultant Surgeon, an Irishman, Mr. Coglan. And I said to him, you've got to do something for me, otherwise I'm going to top myself. I'm going to kill myself. I can't take it anymore. And uh, he gave me three options. He said, Mr. Catel, we can undo you, uh, open your head up, recite the plates and try and put them in a more comfortable position. Or he said, we can break, reset your lower jaw, but as soon as you chew anything, it'll pop because it's so weak. Or he said, we can put you on the strange, uh, strongest painkillers that are available, but for an indefinite period. So I went there with a, like a modicum of hope and I left there. I got out, I left there with no hope. The guy that I'd done the legitimate debt collecting with, unbeknown to me, he was a believer. He was a Christian. He didn't I didn't know this at all. But one day he came to my flat to do to discuss the business. And but he could see I was I was I wasn't in a place to to to, to conduct any kind of business. And he he began to go I had my office in the loft and he began to go down the metal steps and he came back up and he said is Will you come to church with me? Well, I'm not a... God had nothing, you know, the Bible, God, totally the opposite. Plus the industry I was in, it was, we were so far apart. So, but I just found myself saying yes. And then when he left, he got all excited. He said, right, me and Val and Bianca, the baby, we'll pick you up Sunday, blah, blah, blah. When he left, I thought, why have I told him I'll go to church? I don't believe. I'm not a believer. Um... But I thought, all right, I've got between now and then to make up a lie. But I didn't. I went. And when I went there, Raphael, I just went full of hatred. And I know from my time as a child, growing up, I loved, I did love people. I loved people. I'd now become, because of my work and whatever, I'd, uh, my, my, my perception and my view and my, had become twisted. But now I went to this church in Canning Town and I hated the world. Let me tell you. What I'm going to tell you now, I fully understand if you don't believe me because if someone was to tell me what I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't believe it. But it happened. What I knew of the, the, the main figure, this Jesus, was this wimpy guy with sandals and walked about, walked on air sort of thing. That was my perception. But uh, by the time I left, when, when I went in, I hated the world. By the time I'd left, something had happened, and now I only hate half the world. You know what I mean? It was, and I kept going. I went back for two or three weeks, and then this guy's brother-in-law said to me, do you want to come to a prophetic conference? So I said, if you tell me what that is, I might have some. I might come. He said, it's church. He said, but it's for, at Notting Hill Gate, a place called Kensington Temple. So, and I bear in mind, Raphael, 
I'm not only in excruciating physical pain, I've got pain. I thought it was in my belly, it's my soul. I, I, I've got unforgiveness, hatred and revenge screaming. I mean, literally screaming. And I'm a weak man now, right? I'm, I've come out of hospital, but my, my health has deteriorated badly. What kept me going was the thought of revenge. These four men that left me for dead, I will exact revenge. And um, so this prophetic conference was going to be on July the 20th, 1992. Now, remember, this is happening in the February 92. And I'm getting progressively worse. And I'm at the point I want to die. But what's keeping me alive is two things. One was the, the thought of revenge. And two, my children. Because it was like, if you die, if you, who's going to look after your kids? And my my own childhood came back to me. So those two things kept me going. So on the um, on the Sunday, the nineteenth of July, and by the way, I'd had calls from different parts of the country, even from from Sunderland and whatever, where I knew people that they offered to come down and and do the deed for me, and I always refused because I'm going to do it myself. And. Um, Sunday, I believe it's Sunday the 19th of July, on top of everything else, I went deaf in one ear. And that was the most frightening thing. <laughs> That's one of the most frightening things. And I ran through the flat and I'm shouting the name of the, the girl that I live with at the time. I said, I can't hear. And I remember running into my bathroom and it was in the bathroom. I decided in my heart, in my heart, my mind, everything, these four men are going to, they're going. They've ruined my, my life's over. But before I go, they're going to go. This is Sunday the 19th of July. You say go in place of kill, die, finish. They're going to be no more. And on the Monday, the 20th of July, myself and the, the girl I was with, living with at the time and a, 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 a doorman of mine who asked me to come to the meeting, and his wife at the time, we met at Gants Hill Station at 5.30. We're going to go to Kensington Temple, which is at Notting Hill Gate. And this is this is why I do understand when people, they don't believe this, but I know what happened to me. We met at the station. Four of us got on the train. We're talking about everyday stuff. And all of a sudden, this guy that I'm with, who worked for me, he said, Ez, you've got to understand the ways of God. He said, you've got to forgive these men. I said, forgive them, I'm going to kill them. And, I, you know, I'm, and, but that word, and he must have said forgive or forgiveness, probably only a couple of times more than that, but he might as well have hit me over the head a thousand times with a hammer. That I didn't want to hear that word. I wanted him to say to me, an eye for an eye, Ez, when you go to sort this out, I'll come with you. That's what I want it. So as far as I'm concerned now, he's my enemy. They're all my enemy. And I didn't speak to them. And then um, before we knew it, we get off the train at Notting Hill Gate Station and it's a short walk to Kensington Temple, five-minute walk. And uh, as, as as hard as this will be for is for people to believe this is what happened to me. I was raging. I'm full of revenge hatred and I'm a man if I was, I'm going to do it but we got to the steps of the temple and something someone something hit me literally and in my heart I forgave these four men but I don't under, understand why I I don't really understand what's going on I'm this big tough guy I run like 100 bouncers you know what I'm saying I, I'm, if the uh, uh, forgiveness is weakness as I thought so I didn't verbalize it to the three people I was with but I knew something has happened in my heart and we get into this Kensington temple and I believe it holds around about a thousand people two levels and it was packed and there were only two rows at the back that were free and we sat in the second row from the back and I made sure that I sat in the aisle seat so if I don't like the proceedings I'm I'm gone so we're sitting in this meeting, Raphael, and um, and there was a, it was an American guy, a preacher, and uh, the music was playing, and I'd never been in a setting like this in my life. It was like the League of Nations. There was black, 
white, Chinese, Asian, young, old, babies, everything. And I'm looking around and I'm seeing men, grown men, with their arms raised and they're praising God. And and being honest and truthful, I thought to myself, wimps. That's what that's that's that that was my thought. And I'm looking around. And then all of a sudden this guy he stopped the music and he said, The Lord is here by his spirit tonight and he's gonna heal some people. He said, The Lord's gonna and he started talking about a man who's had a motorbike accident two years ago, the Lord's gonna heal you. A woman that needs a new coccyx tailbone, the Lord's gonna and he and then he said, he, I'm right at the back of the hall, two row, the second row from the back. And he's pointed, and he, he said, black dude at the back, the Lord thanks you for forgiving, son. And I thought, I haven't told anyone I forgive. Didn't tell the three people. Not only I haven't told them for different reasons. One, I'm a tough guy. I, I wouldn't be saying I forgive. And number two, I, it was in my heart. He said, the Lord has seen it. He said, the Lord thanks you for forgiving, son, and he's going to heal you tonight. Well, within a short space of time, I'm standing up. I'm feeling this heat envelop my whole being, but especially my head. I'm shaking. I'm perspiring. It was just crazy. And... um but I felt this overwhelming sense of peace in amongst all this this heat and that. And I sat on my chair before I fell down. And then I'm trying to work out what's happened to me. So I said to the girl I'm with, Karen, I said, I fancy a coffee. Well, I just needed to get out of that immediate environment to get me senses. There was an outsized vending machine. And we went into the reception, down three steps, and there's this outsized vending. She gets two coffees. She get, got me a packet of crisps and herself a packet of biscuits. Now, this is the woman that for six months, almost six months, has made sure that I've got a constant supply of straws because I, I could drink for a straw. And she she liquid, liquidized my food. I had baby food. I couldn't eat anything solid because of my jaw. And But the crisps, I could put a crisp in my mouth get the flavour, it would go soggy and I'd swallow. But I couldn't use my jaw to bite, to make any biting action. Well, she offered me a biscuit. And I was I was just going to say, you silly so-and-so, you know that I can't bite. But I didn't. I took this biscuit and I bit into the biscuit and I waited for the pain to register. I knew I was going to pay for that, that bite. I was waiting for the pain. No pain. So I bit into it again, no pain. And there's just two of us standing by this vending machine. And all of a sudden, my eyesight, my vision was fully restored. I used to see with a blur, and it would take me about 30 minutes in the morning to get a, a, a real focus. I wasn't blind, but when my hearing came back, the pains in my head subsided at that point. They didn't go, they subsided. And in my stomach, it was like a whirring going on. I, I, could, I couldn't make it out, but I knew it was good. I was feeling, getting strong. And I, the first thought that came into my mind is I could run a marathon without training. That's how we ran back into the auditorium. This is 20th of July, 1992. The preacher done what they call an altar call. And I went forward and I repented of my sins and I gave my life to Jesus Christ that night. From that night till today, I've never had another pain in my head. I could see, I can hear, I can eat what I like. Well, I'm brand new, Raphael. And I promise you, that this is not the rantings of a madman. I'm a very, you know, I know what happened to me. That was 20, nearly 28 years ago. And that's what I've done. I've been to Africa, America, telling my story. And it doesn't end there. It's, it's a long story. But you asked me about when I got shot. Well, after I gave my life to Jesus, I called a meeting with my doorman at a place called Fairlock Waters in Parkinside. And I knew they knew me. So I told them, uh, I'm going to, we're doing things differently now. I said, we're going to, 
put uniform on. I said, we're going to clean our shoes. We're going to clean our fingernails when we clean. I said, we're going to open and close doors for people. We're going to meet and greet people nicely. And I said, we're going to drop our weapons. Well, you if you say that to a bouncer, you might as well tell him to get stripped of his clothes and go out into the street naked. Mm. But so they're all looking at me as if I've lost the plot. And this particular time when I got shot, there was a place in Bethnal Green, Bethnal Green Road. And it had a very unusual licence because it wasn't a nightclub, it wasn't a pub, but they were allowed to be open till four or five in the morning, but they had loads of problems. Well, now my company is a legit company. It's a proper company and we're recognised by uh, the local authorities and whatnot. And we're doing the job properly. Well, we were called in. The police were going to refuse this place a licence unless they got legitimate security. So they got us in reluctantly. And it was a, it was a, this haunt was known for drugs and this, that and the other. And we set our team in there. And from day one, we had problems. But the guy I'd left in charge of the door, he was ex uh, Royal Marine guy, Andy, my operations manager. And uh, when I got to the venue, he said to me, um, I said, how's things going? He said, oh, we've had these brothers come in and try and do this, that and the other. And just as he was telling me, one of these brothers came out of the toilet and uh, I couldn't hear what was said. The music was too loud. But the next thing I know, Andy, this guy, my, my guy, is cutting this guy out. And another guy, one of his friends came and I had to intercept. So now we're all out on the Bethnal Green Road, all out on the pavement. And all the threats are coming back about what they're going to do, this, that, and the other. Well, the man, the owner, one of the owners of the club, I didn't understand or realise what he was doing at the time, but he was manoeuvring me. And uh, I was standing by a fruit machine and he was wagging his finger at me, telling me what he's going to do to me. And then he's, he calmed down, he changed tack. And he said, oh, we can't hear properly. Come, come into the lobby. So we went into the lobby and talking a bit more. And then he's got me out onto the street. I've got my back to the road. He's got his back to, uh, against his building. And we're talking. Next thing I know, a couple of shots rang out. And um, I've hit the deck face down. And I've played, played dead. Well, I hear four more shot, shots ring out, so I know it's a revolver. It's not an automatic, but I'm still not getting up in case he's reloading. And then I, I unbeknownst to me, two, two of my doormen were actually out there watching my back, but they hadn't said anything. Next thing I know, one of them, Keithy, he's shouting, he thinks I'm dead. Is is. So I realised the gunman must have gone, and I've got up. And I saw another one of my guys, and as I'm looking at him, his eyes are spinning, which is the last thing before he'd been shot, and he died. And I, I was shot in the shoulder, um, but I'm alive. And uh, at that point, I, I said, that's it now, I'm out of this game. And it was the dead guy's parents, his dad was a police officer. And um, he was a police officer, and he'd been a... a he was at the Old Bailey, a police officer at the Old Bailey. But I said, that's it, we're packing it up. And it was only the mother said, no, you're, you're doing you're doing a good job. You're trying to straighten things out. You're doing... A, and she's the reason that I continue to provide the security service. Let me ask you a couple of very pointed questions then, because um, it seems to me... I mean, what a violent um, incident that, that brought about the change in you. I mean, you went... Seeking revenge for your friend and his girlfriend ended up getting assaulted to the point where, you know, you were disfigured, you were almost killed. And even if they didn't kill you, you wanted to kill yourself because you couldn't live with the the, the damage that had been done to you, as tough as that was. But, you know, something deep inside your kids, you know, the love they've got for you and no doubt you've got for them stopped you taking your own life when you thought all hell was 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 left. And then that pivotal moment, which I struggle with, um, and you kept putting in that caveat, didn't you, at the beginning, sort of saying whether people believe this or don't want to believe this, it's true. And you kept convincing yourself and, and me. 
You were at your most vulnerable when you decided to embrace forgiveness, to give forgiveness and to accept Jesus Christ, Christianity, God, however you embraced that um, religion. You were at your most vulnerable. And I can imagine having been broken from this big tufty to the point where you then realise you're not maybe you're not as as invincible as you once thought because you've now been broken and broken proper. Your head, your jaw, your eyesight, your earring, every part of you had been injured previous to that through the assault. So you were at your most vulnerable when someone stepped to you, as and said, come to church. Um, what, what I'd have to, in response, Raphael, and I do always say, because I wouldn't believe, you'd never get me in church a preacher, someone knocking on my door, stopping me in the street, get me to read the book. It would never, ever happen. That's that. Plus, by the time that thing happened to me, I did think I was invincible or indestructible. But I was a very, very stubborn, self-willed man. And um, and the state that I was in, I, I call it, when I used to, when the I call it the Tabasco. I used to get to a point, Raphael, within anger, where whatever was gonna, it, there was nothing gonna stop me. And I'd got to that point when, when the guy Marcus said to me, "You got to forgive these men," right? That would have made me even more vengeful, and it did. And the Tabasco rose up. When I say about, I got to the temple, and I now know who it was. I now know, you know, I talk about the Holy Spirit and whatever. I didn't know. I just know something hit me and hit me hard enough for me to genuine in my in my heart those men that ten minutes before I wanted to 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 what take out I didn't want to do it anymore, and what it was as well the pain I've explained my 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 physical pain, but the pain in my soul probably outweighed my physical pain because I wasn't born I wasn't a hater I became twisted in my thinking and in my actions certain actions because of the industry that I'd entered into but generally speaking under all that there was a a heart to protect and I know and I do understand for people that would say well hold on yeah it's because he was vulnerable no it was everything that happened was genuine if the presence, I'm going to say the presence for people that don't, I'm going to call him the Holy Spirit, he's a presence, he's the person of God, came upon me and done something inside of me. Did it make me a weaker man? No, it made me a stronger man. And even in terms of security, I went, I went from being that, I became, I, I after this, after becoming a Christian, I still, I became Close protection officer, Irish close protection officer that took me to the States. I trained, I've, I've done the law enforcement uh, SWAT training over there. I've been to Mexico looking after someone. And I might add, and Christians, certain Christians would scoff at this, but I don't, I, you know, my relationship with Jesus is personal. I became, I carried weapons for the first time legally. And I still put myself in harms what to protect people, but this time under control. Lawful and under control. And God trusted me with that. And so it's not as if, yes, I was vulnerable, but did it make me less of a man? No, it made me more of a man because... You, you talk about, and I find this so fascinating, you talk about it hit you like a lightning bolt, this this kind of message that you should forgive. And was there any sense of the opposite happening, that the, the pressure that you were under of being the man that you 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 are and was then um, was able actually to be released? It was the stresses and strains and psychological pressures of your life experiences up until that point, which had been about the heart to protect little boy you was at five years old and 14 years old in your your parents' garden wanting to become a, a bodyguard that you talked about much earlier on. So instead of the light hitting you, 
it's interesting that some people would see, as I do, that it was a moment of release. I don't think so, Raphael. In fact, I, I know it wasn't. I know. Because I know myself and people that know me. Once I was bent on that course, I decided, you know, the pain I was suffering. Now I've got my friend telling me to forgive. Well, I don't understand the thing, forgiveness. and where, As far as I was concerned, I mixed up forgiveness. Um, uh, I, I considered forgiveness weakness. And I didn't understand that Weakness and meekness, they sound the same, but have totally different meaning. Meekness is strength under control. Um, whereas weakness is really going through with what I was, I call hell bent on. It's easy to throw a punch, right? It's, it's, it, but it's a weakness to throw punches or to exact violence because you can, you know, but that's, there's no strength. Strength. Is meekness. You could do, but you hold back. You're under control. But I knew I was a man. I wasn't under control. I was a foolish man. I'd become a foolish man, a very impetuous man. And once that, I, <laughs> that, that thing had risen up and it pretty much taken over. There's no way these men are going to survive. And you've got to remember what I've been telling you, Raphael. If this hadn't happened to me, see. I believe that God does know each of us as individuals and knows what we need. You might be a man that would contemplate, think about things deeply before you make a decision, or there's a certain way. God knew there was no way I was going to come to him any other way than than had happened because of my, as I say, see, it's all an illusion. Reputation, hard man, this, that, now... People didn't see. When I was leading from the front out there on the street and doing this and going up, what they didn't see is the real me indoors when no one was around and holding my head in my hands saying, why did you do that? Why did you do that? It was a terrible thing or, or whatever. And sometimes not even thinking it was a terrible thing, but that was a, that was a silly move. But... The persona, the mask that I wore, and or and there was more than one because every time you 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 go on a kind of mission or something, you're putting on another mask, and the real you is really being it's completely denied. But what happened to me that night, Raphael, and again, whether people believe it or not, I hope they do because I I take it it's the most serious thing in my life. What happened to me, the 20th of July, 1992, was the best thing that happened to me. And since then, my lifestyle has changed. My, my life, uh, I've got a quality now, and I appreciate people, especially my family, more than I've ever done in my life, or since I was a young boy. And then you wrote a book. What, 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 what was the, the purpose of your book? I mean, give me the title and tell me what the purpose of your book was about. The title of the book is I'm Asking You Nicely. The purpose of the book totally was it's a, it's a message of hope. Oh, that's the purpose of the book is to give hope. Hope to the, the hopeless. Because while we've got breath in our body, there's hope. A lot of the decisions that are made were because there's cause and effect. What happened to me in that police van changed something in me. And uh, I took on a rebellious nature. And anything I could do against, not necessarily against the police, but to outwit or outfox them or whatever, I, I would do it because of that event. Did you ever serve time in prison? Have you ever been arrested, charged with offences? Uh, served time in prison, yeah. What was that for? Uh, they they conspiracy to blackmail. How long did you serve? Five years, two and a half in, and two and a half on license. You mentioned as just a moment ago that your book is about hope, and you talk about second chance. So, what does second chance actually mean to you? And what was your second chance? My second chance was the the, the event on the twentieth of July, nineteen ninety two, was a massive turnaround. I did receive a miracle because it wasn't only my physical restoration, all that hatred that I had in my stomach or my soul for people 
it went. And that's not possible. It's not human. It wasn't in my nature to just release that and release everybody. People say to me, what about the four men? I, uh, uh, do you still forgive them? Yes, I do. And my prayer for them is that one day they would see the light. There's hope for them as well. And, and I don't hate that. I, I can honestly put my hand on my heart and say I don't hate anybody, even people that would rail against me, even people that consider people of colour of no value. I don't hate them. In fact, I feel for them. But as long as I know, I've got no hate, and that means I can have a quality of life. And my life is about, it is about, I'm not a do-gooder as per se, but it's in me to want to help people. And if it's through my story, great. But if it's through practical methods, great. But I can enjoy my life now because I've had a second chance. See, I deserved to be punished. I deserved punishment, but I got a second chance. And why do you think other people deserve a second chance? Because I truly believe the old adage that no one's perfect. And many people make mistakes in their life. Sometimes they make them repeatedly. One mistake could take you to a place where it looks like there's no coming back from it. And at that point, you'd want someone to reach out an arm to pick you up. And that happened to you at an 18-month-year-old little boy. And that's what it brings me back to, the beginning of your story, which is when you were 18 months old, against all the odds, a white couple in the East End of London, in England, during a time when there weren't many black people about, picked up this little boy, his brother and his sister, and they gave you a second chance at life. And look where you are now. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, unbelievable, but, but believable, because, you know, what I have learned as well, Raphael, is that I could beat myself up for the things that I've done in the past. I, I truly, and this is personal to me, I'm not saying I'm not out there Bible bashing. I do want people to believe, but my story is when I was at my lowest point, when I was in pain, spirit, soul and body, when I needed someone more, with more than words, I needed action. Someone came, and I know that when this minister said, Jesus loves you, and he thanks you for forgiving, son, he forgave me for the wrong things that I'd done. And in turn, he asked me to forgive others, which I've done. And if more people were to get in that mode of forgiveness and, and, and looking out for each other, this world would be a lot it, uh, it would be a lot better because there's nothing actually wrong with the world. It's just the people in it. You're absolutely right. Well, look, as it's been a pleasure talking to you. So, so interesting. Thank you so much for sharing some of your journey and, and your story. It's been interesting. I'm sure a lot of people are going to learn a lot from what, from what you have to share. So thank you again, Ez, for sharing your story. Thank you, Raphael. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review. If you want to hear about new episodes, please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by JRO Productions, design work by Studio Minerva, and myself, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.